well, if you just read your Bible more, then you won't, then you aren't going to cut yourself. Like that's, <laughs> that's not a correlation that's there necessarily. And so if I believe in a loving God, which I do, then God's grace and his compassion is still enough to meet me where I am, whether that's on a good day or a bad day, whether I'm actively engaging in self-injury or not at that point, I can be a Christian and have a strong faith and believe all these things and still also struggle. It's a both and situation. Welcome to season two of the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast, where we explore the psychology behind non-suicidal self-injury or NSSI for short. Whether that be cutting, burning, biting, hitting, severely scratching, or some other form of NSSI, the purpose of this podcast is to be a resource for parents, professionals, and people with lived experience, as well as anyone else who may have interest in the topic. Here, I interview the leading experts in the field of self-injury, as well as individuals with lived experience of self-injury and parents and family members of those who self-injure or have self-injured. I'm your host, Dr. Nicholas Westers, clinical psychologist at Children's Health, associate professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and chair of the Media and Communications Committee of the International Society for the Study of Self-Injury, or ISSS, or simply IISS. A number of episodes ago, we interviewed Brittany Tinsley about navigating self-injury during routine doctor visits based on her own experience with self-injury. And as you recall, she's a writer and currently serves as the community manager for Hope Writers, which is an online membership community for writers. She struggled with self-injury for more than a decade, and she writes candidly about her own experiences to raise awareness and offer hope. Her work has been published in print and online, including one about her own lived experience with self-injury that she published with To Write Love on Her Arms this past March 1st, which is Self-Injury Awareness Day each year. You can connect with her on Instagram at Brittany Tinsley Writes or on her website, BrittanyTinsley.com. I'm excited to be able to hear Brittany share about her own lived experience with self-injury, providing greater context to our previous interview about navigating conversations related to self-injury during routine doctor visits. So it's great to have you again, Brittany. Thank you for joining us again. Thanks for having me back. In our previous episode, you had alluded to having started self-injuring when you were 15 and you're, what, 30 now? 30 now. Yeah, so I started self-injuring when I was 15 and really struggled with it for about a decade until I was about 25 and like I said, 30 now. So, you know, I have a few years under my belt, but yeah, it was something that really dictated and affected the majority of my teen years and young adulthood for sure. Using general terms, what is it that you had done or have done? I started cutting when I was 15 and that was my method of self-injury. It, you know, was more severe at some points than others, but that has really been the main, my main form of self-injury. And was this something that you had been exposed to prior to self-injuring or was this something that you had just discovered on your own that was helpful for you in some way? I read a book, a fiction book about self-injury when I was in middle school. It was very graphic and a very severe case of it. And I thought that that book was totally insane. And that was really my only exposure to it whatsoever. I had no friends who I knew of who were self-injuring. I had never heard anybody talk about it. It was just this one book. And when I started self-injuring, I almost kind of fell into it by accident, which I know sounds funny to say, but it was something, it wasn't a really a premeditated situation that very first time. I didn't even remember until years later that I'd actually read this book beforehand. So 
I would not say that I was really influenced by anything in particular. It was kind of a spur of the moment, impulsive decision the very first time. And when I did it that first time, it worked for me. And so it quickly spiraled from that point. You said it worked for you. What did it do for you? I think that it helped me feel in control. I had had a friend who had recently committed suicide and um, I felt a lot of guilt about that and was really just struggling with feeling like everything in my world was kind of out of control. My family moved really frequently. There was some ongoing family stuff at that point. My whole world was just kind of falling apart around me, it felt like. And this was something that made me feel like I was in control of something. And it also served as kind of a numbing for me. It was, you know, kind of a both and. It helped me feel in control when I was feeling too much. And it also kind of numbed things. And then when that pendulum swung too far that direction, it helped kind of bring me back the other way and helped me feel something again. So it was kind of a multifaceted thing, which I think is probably the case for a lot of people. But for me, it, it was it really at the end of the day, mostly came down to control. You had mentioned that you had stumbled upon it by accident. What do you mean by that? The very first time that I self-injured, I had been upset and had locked myself in my bathroom and there was a pencil on the counter. And it was one of those mechanical pencils where you click it once and it gives you some metal. And I was just kind of doodling on myself and it left behind a white line and kind of without even thinking about it, I just went over that spot enough that it drew some blood. It was very superficial. And in that moment, it didn't feel like it was really a problem. But that was kind of the thing that started it all. It was kind of just this thing I stumbled into an impulsive decision that wasn't really intended to cause any harm. And it kind of grew and became this bigger monster. <laughs> you call it a monster. And earlier you were you were saying that it gave you a sense of control, but I don't know how much control we have with monsters. Yeah, it was definitely something that made me feel like I was in control. And then it was this thing that I felt like was supposed to make me feel in control, quickly spiraled out of control and kind of took over everything else. So it definitely, while effective in making me feel like I was in control, at the end of the day, I was not in control and it was really something that was controlling me, which is when I realized I had an issue. There was a lot going on in your life. So you had lost a friend to suicide and you felt guilt about that, that you, you felt responsible for? He was a close friend. My family, my dad was military. We moved a lot. And this was a friend I had made when I'd moved there. We'd only lived in, we were in California at this point for about a year and a half. And when he committed suicide, I just felt like, you know, I should have noticed, I should have done something. All of those things that if you've lost somebody to suicide, I think you kind of go through feeling, you know, what could I have done? What could I have said? What should I have seen that I didn't see? Yeah, so I think I felt a lot of guilt and responsibility for not being aware that my friend was struggling in the way that he was that ultimately led him to take his life. Then you started to struggle. Did any adult in your life, you're 15 years old, did any of them know about that at the time that you were having such a hard time? No, I was keeping it very hidden. I am not a very emotional person and don't like to admit vulnerability. And so I did everything in my power to make sure nobody knew that I was struggling in any way. And I kind of projected this image of having everything together. You know, I was really heavily involved at church. I was making straight A's in all my honors classes. I played on the varsity volleyball team at my school. Like I was not the girl who you thought would have been struggling. And so, and I didn't want people to know that I was. And so there was really no adult in my life that caught on to what was going on. And at what point did adults find out? Did you decide to disclose that to them? Yeah. When I realized that no matter what was happening, whether I whether something positive had happened or something negative had happened, my go-to reaction was to want to cut. 
um, whether I felt something positive or negative, my go-to reaction was to want to cut. That's when a, you know, a warning bell went off in my head. It was like, I think this might be a problem. And I started trying to quit on my own and I was not successful at all. At that point, it kind of started scaring me the severity that it had, you know, that the issue had become. And so I approached a volunteer in my youth group who I trusted. She was 23, you know, at the time I was 15 and I thought she was like so mature and had her life so together that she would know what to do or how to help or provide some accountability in some way. I kept thinking if somebody just knew and would hold me accountable, then I wouldn't be doing this. And so I told her that I was struggling and she reacted in the best way you could ever hope anybody would react. She was so kind and so compassionate and so understanding and made me feel totally normal about it, which was something that, you know, I didn't feel about myself at the time. Kind of together, we agreed that we would give it a little bit of time. And if her asking me about it was helpful and helped curb the behavior, then we would kind of let everything just run its course and go from there. But if it didn't, then we would get somebody else involved. Over the next few weeks, every week when um, I would see her at church, she would ask, hey, Brittany, have you self-injured this week? Have you cut this week? And my answer was always yes. And it wasn't getting any better. There was no sign of it slowing down. It was getting worse and more frequent. And at that point, she said that she thought that we needed to tell a real adult. You know, those were her words. We need to tell a real adult. We decided together that the real adult would be my youth pastor at the time. And so at that point, we approached him together. She went with me and disclosed my self-injury to him. You had mentioned that you had self-injured with any emotional intensity or any emotion that you experience, whether positive or negative. And I think a lot of people are unaware that people may self-injure not just because they're having what some might call negative emotions. I tend to refrain from calling any emotion positive or negative (laughs) because the connotation, but negative being sadness or anxiety that people might consider. But sometimes more pleasant emotions can trigger episodes of self-injury for some individuals. And it sounds like that also occurred for you for both positive and negative emotions. Yeah. Any emotion at that point just felt so overwhelming, even if it was one that we would consider to be good, you know, happiness or excitement or anything like that. It just, it all felt like too much to me and I didn't want to feel it. It felt very out of control to feel even something positive, which I know sounds counterintuitive. And I know that that probably doesn't make sense to a lot of people who don't have this experience, but no matter which side of the spectrum it was on, it all just felt like too much. And my goal in self-injuring was to kind of bring myself back to this center of nothingness, basically, because that felt safe and I was comfortable in that spot. Anything too positive or too negative was something that I couldn't handle at that point. And so this was a way to keep me from having to handle it. You said you tried multiple times to stop. You were just not able to stop. So you ended up deciding to tell your one of your youth leaders. What were some of the things that you were trying to do to stop that just wasn't working for you at that time? Part of me felt like if I just tried hard enough, I could will myself into not self-injuring. And I'm a stubborn person. And so I thought, you know, I'm stubborn. I'm determined. I can handle this. I'll just not do it and kind of cold turkey the situation. And that was not helpful. And when I realized that was not going to work for me, I had a couple of songs that I would listen to that helped in, in, in the moment, like helped me feel a little bit better. And so I would listen to these songs instead of self-injuring. There were cases in which I was able to delay the self-injury, but I was never able to kind of get to a point where I didn't eventually feel like I needed it in some way. 
at that point, there was nobody talking about self-injury. It wasn't something, you know, that was discussed. Like now in schools, you have, you know, assemblies about suicide and drug use and things like that. And self-injury just is never part of that conversation. And so I felt like I was the only one struggling. I didn't know what to do. I would Google, you know, in secret at night on my family's computer, like how to quit cutting and read about the butterfly project at some point where you draw a butterfly on your arm and or whatever part of your body it is that you you know are injuring. And the goal is to keep the butterfly alive by not injuring in some way. And so I tried that. Just anything on any list that I could come up with, I tried. I just ran down them, you know, one by one and nothing seemed to work. And I think it was really just because I was trying to do it on my own and was really in a place where I was struggling a lot. I just needed more help than I could give myself at that point. Trying to do it alone on your own. You said you're stubborn. And so you could try to will your way forward and out of this. And I think that's helpful for us to hear because I know a lot of individuals may have their own lived experience of self-injury and might have been able to will their way out of it, but not everyone. And I think about that in terms of other difficulties people might experience, whether it's depression or anxiety. I was able to get myself out of bed and go to work or go to school. Why can't you? You know, like if I could do it, you can do it. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps mentality that can be not helpful for many people. So I appreciate you bringing that up where you just did everything you could. And sometimes we need a little bit of help from someone. And so you chose to disclose this to your youth leader at church. Why her? She was somebody that I had a relationship with at that point. There weren't many people in my life just because we moved so frequently that I had an ongoing relationship or a relationship that was deep enough where I felt like I could reveal something. And I was, I remember being very careful and thinking a lot about who I wanted to tell. I wanted it to be somebody who wasn't going to tell my parents right off the bat and somebody who was kind of separate from my family's world. I didn't want it to be a family friend or something like that because I felt like that's a person who's going to immediately turn to my parents. And I wanted to try to keep them as oblivious as possible. And so she kind of checked the boxes in a lot of ways. She was young and I trusted her and had an ongoing relationship with her outside of my family. And so she just, she was somebody that just made sense to me. And I'm so thankful that she reacted the way that she did, because I think had she reacted differently, probably my experience from that point on would have been so much more different. And I probably wouldn't have been willing to reveal to anybody ever again that I was struggling if she had reacted negatively in that initial admission. You said she reacted positively. What was it that she did or said that was so positive and helpful to you at that time? I think that she, I think really the main thing is she was so calm. When I told her, she acted like it was not that the self-injury wasn't a big deal. She was concerned about it, but she just reacted with like such a calm spirit and asked some really gentle questions. She was very gentle with me about the whole thing. I knew that she cared about me as a person before that. So I think that that helped kind of color my picture of her reaction in a positive way. But I think she was very careful in how she reacted, even being caught off guard by my admission. She just reacted with gentleness and compassion and genuine care. That made me feel better about telling her. You checked in with her on a weekly basis, every time for the most part. You were honest with her and told her that, yes, I I did self-injure, I did cut. At some point, she decided, or was this together, that you and her decided together to tell a youth pastor? We had kind of agreed that if after a certain number of weeks it was not getting better, that the next step would be to tell the youth pastor. And when she brought it up and she was like, you know, I think it's time that we tell a real adult, I was not on board with that plan. I did not want to tell anybody else. I tried to tell her in every way I knew how that I had it under control. And she just kept repeating to me, 
Brit, you really don't. Brit, you really don't. And at some point, even if you're struggling, on some level, you know it's not under control. At least I did in that scenario. Even though I didn't want to, I kind of begrudgingly agreed. You know, I had made this bargain on the front end that I would hold up my end of it and that we would go and tell. And together we did decide it would be my youth pastor, that that would be the person that we told. But I agreed that we could tell somebody. And so we went and set up a meeting with my youth pastor. She went with me. And I think that that was a big thing too, that she was willing to go with me in that moment and have this conversation and kind of bear witness to it for me so I didn't have to do it on my own to get somebody else involved. You've mentioned control a number of times and being in control. Why do you think it's so important for us to feel this need to control things in life? In this case, I guess for you, if you can talk specifically to managing self-injury, because that's been a theme that you've shared. It has given you control, but then now your youth leader is saying, no, you're not in control. I think that as humans in general, we like control. We like to be in control. We like to feel like, you know, we're in some way in control of our surroundings and the things happening to us and the things that we're doing. You know, at that point in my life, everything felt very out of control in pretty much every area of my life. And so, like I said, I think cutting just gave me a sense of maintaining some control. And then when I realized it was something that was controlling me, I realized at some point it was having the opposite effect that yes, it was providing me the sense of control. But was I really in control? I didn't want to admit that that was true, that it had kind of taken over and become this thing that was dictating a lot of my life. But the evidence was hard to ignore. And so when this youth leader, you know, pointed that out to me and kind of insisted that it really was something that had spiraled out of control, I could see that and was willing to admit that maybe there was some shred of truth to what she was seeing. And also, I, I just respected her and I respected her viewpoint. And so to have somebody from the outside say, this looks pretty out of control. I know you feel like you've got it handled. I know you, I know what you're saying to me. But everything about what's going on, the behavior I'm witnessing, the things you're saying, doesn't sound like it's controlled. So you sat down with a youth pastor, and she was there to bear witness, to support you, it sounds like, as well. How did that go, that conversation with the youth pastor? I remember feeling very hesitant to tell him. Self-injury is so often such like a hidden secret behavior. And I was so ashamed. I was ashamed of it. Even at that point, I was ashamed of the behavior and embarrassed by it, embarrassed that like I couldn't get over it, you know, in some way. She sat there with me. She kept her hand on my knee the whole time. And I kind of word vomited this version of what was going on to my youth pastor. And you know, I could see kind of this look of confusion flit across his face as he starts trying to process what I'm telling him. I'm sure I was speaking incredibly quickly because I was so nervous. And, you know, I think part of it was he was trying to process and he was really caught off guard by what I was saying because we hadn't given him any sort of warning. He asked me a lot of questions. It kind of became this like continuing game of 20 questions where the solution never got any clearer, but he had all these questions and I didn't really have any answers to give him. But I walked away feeling like the conversation went well. He wasn't judgmental in that conversation or harsh or anything like that. I walked away feeling like that went about as well as it could have. You know, it was uncomfortable. I didn't like it, but it was okay. You know, so I walked away feeling like maybe in a week he's going to come back to me with some resources or, you know, a five-step guide on how to quit self-injuring or, you know, something like that. I didn't know. I just thought maybe he would have some tangible, workable plan for me to quit or get over this or make progress in some way in the struggle. Instead, a week later, he called and asked if I could come back to his office. And so I did one Wednesday night before church. I went and met with him. 
Um, at that point, I was serving in a lot of different areas in our church. I was really heavily involved in our youth group. I was going on, you know, all the mission trips to all the activities, all the camps, leading everything. And that night he called me up and he told me that he had talked to the other pastors on staff and that kind of together they had decided that effective immediately, I was not welcome at any of that or in any of those positions that I could be there on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights when kind of everybody was there for all the youth group activities, you know, that anybody can walk off the street for, but that anything outside of that, any like specially sanctioned activity by the youth group or anything, any volunteer position, any leadership position, I was not welcome to be a part of. That reaction was not as great. <laughs> you were shamed instead of supported. I mean, you're going in hoping to get some tangible resource to find help, even some biblical you know, mm -hmm. wisdom or guidance in that case. And instead, you were pulled from every place of leadership and areas that you were actively involved in. Yeah, that, that sounds more of a shaming response rather than a supportive response. Yeah, I was caught off guard by it for sure because, you know, I had an ongoing relationship with this youth pastor and, you know, it kind of felt like I was honest with you, which in churches is what we all say. Come to us, admit where you're struggling and we'll, you know, we'll help you, we'll surround you, we'll show Christ's love to you, all of these things. And I had done that. I felt like I had done that. You know, I'd come, I had shared the biggest thing in my life I was struggling with, my deepest shame, like the thing that was causing me the most problems. And instead of being kind of wrapped up in this community that I had always known and been promised, that was all kind of ripped away in one fell swoop. And it felt like in a way I was being punished for being honest. And part of me understood, part of me understood that I no longer measured up to some, you know, invisible standard. I didn't meet the expectation of who he thought I was anymore at that point. But the other part of me just wanted to, you know, scream like, if I hadn't told you this, you wouldn't have known. I brought this to you. You had no idea this was going on. I haven't changed fundamentally in the last, at that point, I'd been self-injuring for about six months. I've been doing all of these things in all of these places for the last six months and you had no idea. So now that you know, now it's an issue. Like there was just kind of the sense of like, well, if I just kept my mouth shut, none of this would have happened. It, yeah, it didn't feel great. <laughs> They were labeling this as something wrong, bad, instead of supporting you. Yeah, they punished you. I don't know if that was one of the functions that self-injury had served for you, but I know for some people, they self-injure to punish themselves. And then someone, maybe in this case, a youth pastor, but many times parents or others will punish them for having punished themselves, unfortunately. Right. What do you tell your parents? You go home, you're just pretty much can't do anything at the church anymore. I imagine they must have been a little suspicious of something. There was so much going on in my family at that point that I think that they were pretty oblivious to that. Like, I just kind of acted like I didn't want to go to these things anymore. You know, I changed my mind. I don't want to go to camp. I changed my mind. I'm not going to do that. And I tried to play it off, you know, like this conversation hadn't happened. At that point, they didn't know about the self-injury. And so I didn't want to have to offer an explanation to them. I certainly didn't want to have to tell them I was self-injuring. I don't think that at that point, they were aware that there was something amiss. I think that they just thought oh, she's flaky and changed her mind on this or, you know, some version of that. I don't think that at that point they really knew that there was anything bigger. They did question why initially I didn't want to do some of these things, but we were also about to move again. And there was kind of this natural wind down that was happening in our lives in a lot of areas just because we had this upcoming move. And so I think that they just kind of wrote it off as, well, she's pulling back because she knows we're leaving anyway and it's hard to move. There were so many layers at that point that it was all kind of wrapped up together and made it hard to distinguish, I think, from their viewpoint, even in hindsight, like what was because of a problem and what was because of all of this other stuff that was going on. 
oftentimes when we talk to parents about depression and anxiety, when there's a sudden change in behavior, when their teenager who's really involved in church suddenly is like stops being involved and there's no explanation, then sometimes it's indicative of something is going on and is worth asking about, whether it's depression, anxiety, something maybe completely unrelated. But in this case, you guys were getting ready to leave yet again, to move yet again. And so they're thinking, oh, she's just pulling back doesn't want to initially make too many commitments and then have to break them or or up and leave. So this is maybe okay. You ended up moving then? We ended up moving. Yeah. My parents actually did find out about the self-injury before we moved. Everything kind of came to a head. I had also disclosed to a teacher in that same time frame. my parents found out and they reacted with a lot of fear and kind of went inquisition style around all of my friends, parents trying to find out if they knew or if their kids had known and nobody did, nobody knew anything. And then my family moved. When we moved, I convinced them that everything was fine, that it was all over. It was totally under control. I think they wanted to believe that. From that point on, they were never aware of anything. I got a lot better at hiding it again and everybody's lives kind of moved on and I hit it for the next 10 years or whatever it was. So, uh, Yeah, it played out in an interesting way. So your parents found out from the teacher? They found out actually from an email, a misplaced email that went to somebody else. I had tried to email someone and it went to my parents instead. Typo situation. It was not great. So they found out in this email was telling actually this initial youth volunteer, you know, I listen to this song all the time when I feel this way and want to self-injure. And I've listened to it X number of times, you know, like on iTunes back then. I don't even know if it still shows you this. Like you could see the play count of songs. And so it's like, I've listened to it this many times. And isn't that so pathetic? Like that I've wanted to do this so many times. And instead of sending it to her, somehow it ended up going to my parents. So they found out from this email that then I tried to play off as like, oh, I didn't say that. That wasn't me. I didn't, I don't know what that meant. You know, it was like, it made no sense whatsoever. But I was just desperate and trying in any way possible to keep them from realizing what was actually going on. And they asked me, you know, are you cutting? And I told them no, that I wasn't. And there was evidence, clear evidence that that was not the case, physical evidence that that was not the case. They were convinced that everybody in my life knew about it. And so they started asking my friends and my friend's parents if they had known what was going on. They didn't know anything. They went to my youth pastor, who at that point was aware of the self-injury and got involved with him. The way that it all played out just felt very invasive and very kind of witch hunty in a way, you know, like they wanted to find anybody who knew anything about what was going on. It wasn't a good way for them to find out and it didn't really play out in a way that was good. So the youth pastor confirmed that, yes, you had been self-injuring. At this point, all your friends now knew They knew because my parents asked their parents and their parents in turn asked them, or in some cases, my parents directly asked them. It went from nobody in my world knowing about this at all to everybody knowing about it. And I was just really embarrassed by it. And I didn't want anybody to know. I was embarrassed that it was something that I was doing. I was embarrassed that it was something I was struggling with. So to have all of a sudden everybody be talking about it, everybody aware of it, was a lot. Did that change the frequency in which you were self-injuring at that point? Because at this point, you have no control. It did. Yeah. So initially, when everybody found out initially, I was like, oh my gosh, I cannot do this. I, I have to prove that I'm not, that this is wrong, that like somehow they have the wrong information. They've got the wrong person. I don't know. It was like, I had to prove that it wasn't real. And so 
I, for like a solid week, didn't do anything, didn't engage in any self-injury, which for me was unheard of at that point. Like that was an incredibly long time at that point for me not to have done anything. And then by the end of that week, I was like, I can't do this. And I just kind of, it exploded at that point. It definitely got worse there for a while right after kind of it all came out. Your parents, when they did finally put the pieces together, talk to the youth pastor, did they bring this back to you? And if so, how did they respond? So they talked to my youth pastor and my youth pastor suggested that we all meet together. And so we all sat down, my youth pastor, my mom and my dad, and the pastor of the fifth and sixth grade area, which is where I volunteered a lot, all sat down together. Supposedly, we were going to have a conversation about what to do from that point. It didn't really go that way. It felt like everybody was talking about me while I was sitting right there. And so I got up and I walked out of the meeting. You know, I didn't want to sit there and listen to them, like talk about me while I was sitting right next to them. And nobody wanted, it felt like nobody wanted to listen what I to what I had to say or was even trying to understand at that point where I was coming from. My parents, after that meeting, immediately took me to a therapist and I knew <laughs> I was you know, it was not a great time in my life. So this is not a great reflection on my character. But I knew that the therapist legally couldn't tell my parents what I said. And so I walked in and said, I know you can't tell them anything. So I'm not going to say anything to you. And so I sat there in silence with this poor therapist for, you know, four or five sessions, truly in silence. And she would try and ask me some questions, even about things, you know, that were um, really unrelated to anything deep or hard or anything. And at one point, she started asking about friends. And I, you know, was telling her I did have a lot of friends. And I was kind of talking up all the positive things about myself. You know, I have friends, I play volleyball, I, you know, volunteer at church. And she said, well, that doesn't sound like the girl I've been told about. And at that point, I was like, okay, I'm done. I'm out. And I literally turned around on in the chair I was sitting in and sat with my back to her for the rest of the session, which was a very mature move on my part. But I just, I wanted no part of it. And I felt, I felt like everybody was working against me. Nobody really was listening to me. And I knew we were moving. So I knew that I kind of just had to wait out the clock in some sense. And so I did, we moved and that was kind of it. And it never came back up again. But before you move, what about the teacher? What did the teacher do with that information? So this teacher had found out, well, this teacher had seen a mark on my arm months and months and months before. He had a couch next to his desk and we were allowed to like work on the couch when we were doing group work and that sort of thing. And so a group that I was working with was sitting there. I reached for a stapler that was on his desk. He was sitting at the desk. My sleeve rose up and he saw, you know, some things and he kind of caught my eye and, you know, kind of tilted his head at it. And I just, shrugged and pulled my sleeve back down. And later that day, he asked if I had a story I wanted to tell. Kind of under his breath, he walked by and he's like, you know, hey, do you have a story you want to tell? And I said, no. And he said, okay. And he left it alone. You know, I had this sense of if I could just get over it before we moved, then I could leave it in California. Like it was this very compartmentalized mentality, you know, like if I can just deal with it here, then I can start fresh and not have to have this be a thing anymore. We had a project that was due at the end of the year where we were able to write, he was an English teacher, where we could write a personal reflection. He called it a sophomore thesis. It's my sophomore year of high school on any book we had read, any piece of art we had studied and how it related to our own lives. And there was one book we had read, Nausea by Jean-Paul Sartre, the philosopher. In that book, there was a scene where he cut his hand accidentally with a letter opener. So I 
wrote a cover page and said, Cottrell, you know, we all called him Cottrell. Cottrell, you asked me a few months ago if you had a story to tell, if I had a story to tell and I said no. That was a lie. I do. This is that story. And I let in with this quote from this book about where Antoine, the main character, had accidentally sliced his hand with a letter opener. I kind of just told my story from that point. We turned it in the day before the last day of school. And he was going to grade them overnight and hand them back the next day. And mine was in a yellow report folder. And as he was walking around the room, handing them back the next day, you know, I kind of was, well, I was panicked, (laughs) truly, because I was like, oh my gosh, I've told him, why did I do this? What made me think this was a good idea? Now this teacher knows he's going to have to like legally have to tell my parents, this is a huge mistake. And I kept seeing him put this yellow folder on the bottom of his stack. You know, he's walking around, handing them out to students and he kept moving my yellow one to the bottom. And he finally got down to where it was the only one left. And he walked over to me. And I, I like I just knew it was not going to be good. And he kind of hit me on the head with it gently. And he you know, said, Britt, you made me cry. And he handed it to me and walked away. And I opened it up and he had he was a notoriously hard grader. And he'd given me 100 because what else are you going to give the kid who admits that they're like self-injuring in a, you know, a school paper? And he had written a note to see him after class. That was my last class of the day. This was the last day of school. And I had been very careful in this paper to talk about it all in the past tense. You know, I thought if I say it in the past tense, then I can make it sound like it's not an ongoing issue. And maybe that will in some way fall into a gray area where he doesn't have to say something to somebody. The room emptied and I was sitting there and he was like, I want to talk about what you wrote in your paper. Are you okay? And I said, yes. And was like, it's an old issue. It's totally fine. It's taken care of, which was not true at all. And he was like, well you know, legally, I have, I'm supposed to say something here. He's like, it's a little bit of a gray area because you're moving and you're telling me it's not an issue, but I want to make sure that you're okay. I assured him that I was, and he told me to take care of myself and he let me go. And I was like, okay, I like, I've done it. I've pulled it off. And a couple of weeks later we had moved and he, I guess, had found an old email that I had sent him when I was absent one day, I'd emailed him an an assignment and he found that email and emailed me and was like, ha, I found you. You thought I was, you were going to get away that easily. Like, I just want to make sure you're okay. Just checking in. And so he continued to follow up. And like to this day, this teacher and I still email probably once a year or so he checks in and just, you know, it's like, Hey, how's it going? Are you okay? But yeah, I did disclose to this teacher and ultimately nobody found out through him, but it made me feel like, you know, I can walk away from this and leave it, which didn't end up being the case, but that was really my goal in writing it out that way. Like I've always been drawn to writing and that felt like a very like bookend way to kind of finish out what I thought was going to be the end of this issue with self-injury. Does he know that that was not the case? Have you shared with him the full story? He does know. Um, (laughs) I haven't been as honest as I probably could be. He doesn't know the whole truth necessarily, but he does know it was something that I struggled with in kind of an ongoing way. And I always tried to, you know, every time he and I would email, I'd try and paint it in a positive light. Like, oh, I slipped up a little bit, but I'm doing well. Like, it's not a big issue. Generally, I just wouldn't email him back when it was a big issue so that I could say truthfully, like, everything's okay. Like, I'm doing great. You know, I slipped up a couple months ago, but everything's fine now. You know, that sort of thing. So that's kind of how that played out. So now fast forward, you move to where? Texas. To here here in Texas. And at that point, if I recall, you said that you were still self-injuring pretty frequently. Yeah. So that was right before my junior year of high school. We moved the summer between my sophomore and junior year. I got a lot better at hiding it. And 
people in my life, which was really just my family at that point, stopped kind of looking for it. And it continued to escalate in terms of frequency and severity in some cases. And I would kind of have waves of trying to get a handle on it again. And it never really worked again for me. It just wasn't something at that point that I was able to do. And so again, I kind of found myself in this position of like, this is something I desperately want to quit. And I think that that was something that was overlooked a lot was that I was actively trying to quit, even though it didn't really look like it. It wasn't something I enjoyed at that point. It wasn't something, while it was serving a purpose, it wasn't serving me well at that point. And so I approached, again, my youth pastor here in Texas. Well, actually, we were at a Wednesday night service and I had kind of become overwhelmed with the severity of the situation and didn't really know what to do. And I walked outside in the middle of service, our youth building opened, you know, to the outside and I was standing there and I kind of heard him come out behind me. He asked if I was okay. And I didn't really have a way to even know how to begin to describe like the shame that I was carrying and the weight of this like ongoing struggle that I was having alone. And the fact that I knew I couldn't, well, I felt like I couldn't reveal it to my parents again because they had reacted in the way that they had previously. And so it just, and I didn't have a lot of friends at that point. We were brand new to town. And so I just, I turned and I pulled up my sleeve and I just thrust my arm out at him, which was not a great move probably. And he just kind of looked for a second and he said, tell me what I'm looking at right now. And I was like, well, I used to, I used to cut, but it's fine now. And, you know, he was like, well, it doesn't really look that way. And I had this moment of like, oh no, I've done it again. I've told again a pastor who's going to now like rip this community that I've started to build for myself here away. And so I kept waiting for the other shoe to drop. And a couple days later in the mail, a note arrived with the return address for the church stamped in the corner. And I was like, oh, here it is. Like here it is in writing now. You know, I don't just get like the verbal version. I get it in writing and delivered to my mailbox. But I opened the note and it was from him. And he had said that, you know, he was so happy I had told him that he was praying for me, that he hoped that I would continue to be involved, that his door was always open. If I ever wanted to text or call him, I was welcome to. And that if I wanted him to find some resources for me to let him know, basically. And it was the exact opposite of the reaction I had been met with, with my first youth pastor in San Diego. You know, instead of this, you know, we're going to push you away. You're too much. We can't handle this. It was come closer. Let us love on you. Let us help you. Let us do what we can to support you in this moment when you're, you know, really struggling. And so um, it was kind of a full circle moment for me where, you know, this community that at one point had, had really said, like, you're not welcome here is now coming and saying, you're not only welcome, you're wanted. Mm. And that was a really powerful experience. Well, I'm, yeah, I have, you probably can't see, but I, I am, have some tears <laughs> just hearing you, uh, hearing you share your story and the night and day difference that you and support that you got from people that were important in your life and had the opportunity to speak into your life and this one instead of again ripping everything out from beneath you instead just embraced you so did they end up telling your parents or did they just work with you where you were they never told my parents that youth pastor was actually getting a master's degree in counseling at that point and so i think that he had probably a better understanding of what self-injury actually was than maybe my first youth pastor, who I think saw it much more as like a suicide attempt or a suicide attempt gone wrong or like a, a warning for a coming suicide attempt or something. I think this youth pastor 
you know, truly saw it as just an unhealthy coping mechanism. And when I told him that I was working on it, I think he believed me. He did continue to check up on me. It wasn't like he just totally ignored the fact that he knew that this was going on. But I think that he trusted what I was telling him a lot more than others up to that point had. And so he never said anything to my parents or to anybody else, as far as I know, at the church at all about what was going on. When do you think it would be appropriate, whether in this case or other cases, that youth pastors do tell parents about the self-injury? Yeah, I think that that's a hard question because I do think that pastors are trusted people. And so to some extent, when you know a teenager in a youth group reveals something like that, even though there's not an element of confidentiality you know, from a legal standpoint with youth pastors, that's somebody that you trust, that you feel like isn't going to tell people things that you don't want them to know. And so... I think that youth pastors have to be careful because on one hand, you don't want to break the relationship and ruin yourself as a person of trust for this teenager. But on the other hand, they are minors. And I guess unless you're talking about maybe seniors in high school who have already turned 18, but like most of them are minors. Obviously, it is a concerning behavior that needs to be addressed in some way. And so I think that, you know, it's okay for a youth pastor to say like, I th- really think it comes down to communication. I think if the youth pastor is willing to say, I think we should sit down and have a conversation with your parents about this, or I think that we should inform your parents about this, how do you want this to go? That that is probably the best way to approach it. And, you know, if self-injury, even if it's something that's secret, if you're aware of it, that you're probably only seeing the tip of the iceberg. Like the person that discloses isn't going to tell you about the worst case scenario in most cases. They're going to try to paint it to be, to make it sound like less of an issue than it is, to make it sound less severe than it is. In most cases, while you don't want to overreact, I think that it is possible to underreact because they're going to sell it as, really, this is okay. Really, it's it was just this one time. It was just this one way. Look, it's not that bad right now. And it might not be in that moment, but chances are pretty good. It's more than what they're saying that it is. An open discussion about how to approach the parents, how you want that conversation to go, what's okay to say even, what's okay for the youth pastor to share, really goes a long way in that situation. And when you share this, you're now a junior in high school? Mm -hmm. Yes. Did you end up going back to therapy at any point? I didn't. Well, I am in therapy now. I did not go back to therapy at that point. No. I really felt like I just, I'm stubborn, like I said, and I just continued to think like, I don't need help. And I had a, like a negative experience with the first therapist my parents had made me go to. And so therapy felt really scary to me. And at that point, I didn't know how to even get help from a therapeutic standpoint without my parents knowing because, you know, I was a minor, I was on their insurance, like there was no way I was going to be able to see a therapist without them being aware of that. And so it wasn't until I went to college that it really even became an option. Our college, like many colleges, have therapists on campus that you can see for free or for a reduced rate. Ours, you could see for free. That was something that I considered. Ultimately, I didn't end up going to see her. I probably should have, but I didn't. And it wasn't until actually a couple of years ago that I started seeing a therapist again, which has been so helpful. And I would highly, highly recommend to anyone and everyone, regardless of whether or not self-injury is an issue, you know, therapy is just helpful in general. But it wasn't really until a couple of years ago that that was something I started in any way, even being willing to consider as an option. What changed to make you more open to that? Really, it had nothing to do with self-injury at all. I started experiencing a lot of anxiety kind of out of nowhere. And I know that for me, anxiety 
can trigger self-injury or the desire to self-injure. And so when this anxiety kind of came out of nowhere and quickly kind of spiraled out of control, I was like, I need some help. Like this doesn't feel right. This I know is going to go down a bad path for me just because of my history. Like I need some outside help to figure this out. And so I started therapy and then kind of through the course of that, we've actually ended up talking a lot about self-injury because obviously that's something that has played a major role in a lot of years of my life. But it was really this anxiety that kind of came out of nowhere that made me like willing to even consider seeing a therapist again. So that was what did it for me. How great is it though, that even though you had such a bad experience with therapy when you were a teenager, that at some point you realized this still could be helpful for me even as an adult? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It was something, you know, my husband actually has a degree in marriage and family therapy. So when I started experiencing this anxiety, you know, and told him about it, he was like, I think that maybe therapy could be helpful. And he's told me that for years, you know, he obviously knows my history of self injury. And he's always said, like, I think that maybe that would be a helpful thing for you to like explore and talk about some. And so then when this anxiety kind of came along, he was like, you know, I think it might be time yeah, I was willing at, the, at that point, you know, I'd watched him go through all this training for to be a therapist. He's not a practicing therapist, but, you know, I'd watched him go through all this training and just kind of had a better understanding of like what a therapist could do and the relationship you could have with a therapist. And so I was able to recognize that probably my experience when I was 15 was not a great depiction of what the therapeutic relationship was supposed to look like. A lot of that was on me, not on this poor woman that I, you know, was so like rude to that I had matured and probably if I was going willingly could make it be a different situation for myself than I had been, than I had created when I was 15. What a great approach that your husband has taken, just being so gentle and just kind about it over the years and just the way he phrased it in such a supportive way. Thinking back to when you were self-injuring, even as a teenager and into middle 20s, did you find that you were also experiencing diagnosable mental health condition at the time? I've never had any official diagnosis of depression or anxiety or anything else. Even looking back now, I don't think that I was experiencing depression, you know, as a teenager or anything like that. It was, like I said, when it started for me, it really was kind of brought on by this suicide of my friend and spiraled from there. And it really was about control more than anything else. And so I don't feel like I ever experienced any depression or anxiety surrounding the self-injury or in the time frame when I was also self-injuring. And that's something my therapist and I have talked about, you know, whether or not maybe there was an element of that involved. For me, that's just something that I don't, I don't see any evidence of. We've even walked through like the DSM, what uh, requirements are there to meet the diagnosis for depression and things like that. At that point, there weren't symptoms that I was experiencing other than just the standalone kind of self-injury issue that was an ongoing thing that would have met the criteria for a diagnosis as I expressed it to her in hindsight, you know, and that sort of thing. Yeah. So I think for me, I was just one of the people that it was something I dealt with as a standalone issue. The DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual Mental Disorders for those listening that might not be familiar. But you have referenced anxiety at times in our conversation, and it is possible to have anxiety without having an anxiety disorder. And I think a lot of people think that because they experience anxiety, which is a normal feeling, that they have a mental health disorder when sometimes it, it is the case, but sometimes it's not the case. But I did want to ask that because some people self-injure and they don't necessarily meet a diagnosable mental health condition, which 
for some insurance companies becomes a problem because if you wanted to stop self-injuring and you pursue therapy for self-injury and it's not a mental health condition or a diagnosable one and there's no depression, anxiety, or any other type of diagnosis, then insurance companies will not pay for it because there's nothing to bill for in their mind. There's not a diagnosis. So I think that's one myth that people might have if someone self-injures and that means they always have some other mental health condition and sometimes that's not the case. Yeah, and I think that there are psychologists and counselors and therapists to, you know, automatically hear self-injury and jump to a diagnosis or try to pigeonhole somebody into a diagnosis. And that's not always something that fits. And for me, it wasn't there. For me, there was nothing else that suggested there was any sort of ongoing issue, which is why I think it's important that maybe self-injury gets added to the DSM as its own issue, which I know is something that in the latest edition is, you know, in the back is like a consideration for future, you know, versions of it or however the technicalities of all of that happen. But yeah, if they wanted to make it its own thing, then I think it would make it a lot easier for people to get treatment because then you could bill insurance just for self-injury by itself. I think that's a whole topic of debate that a lot of people have different opinions about because they might want to say that, well, it's not a mental health disorder, but then others will be like, well, yes, it is. And then others will say, even if it isn't, we need it for insurance, which is a problematic reason to include it. But if that's the need for it. Well, you had mentioned then that you stopped self-injuring your mid twenties. What was going on that enabled you to stop at that point? At that point, right out of college, you know, 21, 22, I had had several stints where I hadn't self-injured in a while for like four, six, eight months. And it wasn't something that I was turning to as often at that point, not because it wasn't necessarily my first gut reaction instinct, but just because I had some other tools and I recognized that it wasn't healthy. And so I was really trying to do something else. When I got to be about 24, 25, when I kind of really nipped it in the bud, finally, it was something that I had been trying for a long time. And I knew at that point what worked and what didn't work. And really for me, I had learned along the way that counting days, you know, quote unquote clean or trying to keep track of how long it had been or, oh, well, this is less severe than that. Like those kinds of measurement techniques were not helpful for me because it felt like I was setting myself up for failure in a lot of ways. Instead, I would start, I decided at some point, and I don't even remember exactly when this shift happened, but I started at some point to think about success as waiting out the urge to, in my case, cut. It wasn't necessarily about whether or not I did at the end of the day. It was, was I successful in waiting? And so when the urge would come, which it did, you know, I would literally, I would sit myself in front of a clock and look at the clock and say, you have to wait one minute. And I would watch the clock. And when the clock flipped the number, you know, I'd say, okay, you waited a minute. If you still want to cut now, you can, because you waited. And sometimes I did. And sometimes I didn't. More often than not at the beginning, I still did, but gradually I kind of increased that time. And if I did wait a minute, then I would say, okay, you can wait another minute. Let's wait another minute. And I would wait. As it got easier to wait that minute, I would increase the time. And so it went from, you know, one minute to five minutes to 20 minutes. And eventually it got to the point where I would say, you know, okay, you want to cut right now for whatever reason, you have to wait 24 hours. And I would wait 24 hours. And most of the time, by the time 24 hours was up, I couldn't even remember why I had wanted to self-injure in the first place at that point. And so that was really how I started measuring success, which I think gave me the freedom to say, you know, like you haven't failed if you have cut. Like the failure is not about the actual behavior. The failure or success is about whether or not you waited out the time that you said you were going to wait. And that took a lot of the pressure off of me because, you know, I think that this is something that maybe it's hard for them to understand or maybe they just don't recognize it right off the bat. But 
you know, there's a physical evidence of self-injury, right? Whether or not you or I see it, it's there on somebody's body. And so if you are aware that it's going on and if you do see it, all you see are the times that they actually gave in to that urge. You don't see the dozens of times that they didn't. There's a very physical representation. If you're measuring failure or success based on whether or not there's an injury, there's a very physical representation of, quote unquote, a failure. And that carries a lot of shame. And so if you can twist it to be the success isn't whether or not you cut, it's whether or not you in some way waited or distracted or, you know, used another skill for a little bit or something, then I think it makes it a lot more of a positive experience in general and take some of the shame away from the times when you do actually, you know, engage in that behavior again. Everyone listening, individuals with lived experience, parents, clinicians, researchers, everyone hearing you share that hopefully will build that empathy and compassion because you're right. We don't see the times where people resisted urges and didn't mm -hmm. self-injure. The body shows only the times in which someone gives into their urge to self-injure. It almost sounds like you're drawing from a strategy in dialectical behavior therapy or DBT for short, surfing the urge. Emotions come and go, urges come and go. They don't necessarily last forever. But if we can surf the urge, and in your case, you started with 60 seconds and you surfed that urge. And if the urge was still after, you gave yourself permission because you accomplished that which you set out, not to necessarily resist self-injuring, but just resist self-injuring for 60 seconds. And then you gave yourself permission without shaming yourself for giving in. And so you measured success differently. That's a whole reframe of how we would look at self-injury. If the goal is to stop self-injuring, well, for 10 years, you <laughs> that was your goal and it just wasn't working for you. But then suddenly you were able to say, you know, like if I self-injure, I self-injure. But at least if I can have successful moments in which I don't, I can build on that. And that's where the success came. And that's where it sounds like freedom came. Yeah, I think that when I realized just because I feel this right this second doesn't mean I have to react right this second. It opened up a whole new world for me because for so long, you know, a decade, it was, I have this urge right now. I have to react right now. And I trained myself to need and expect that in some way. And so I think that when I just started slowly working my way towards resisting that kind of impulsive, I need this right this second or else, you know, I don't even know what the or else was just or else. Then I was able to recognize that it's uncomfortable. And it's not that the urges went away. They didn't. For a long time, I still had them frequently. But just because I have this urge doesn't mean I have to respond to this urge. And if I don't respond to the urge, that's success. So it did give me a lot more freedom to, you know, just live my life in a way that was a lot healthier than, you know, constantly harming myself. Do you still have urges now and then? I do. Yeah. And I think that that's something that people don't like to admit. And you know, I write about self-injury and I get a lot of messages from people who are like, I'm trying to quit and I still have these urges and how do you make the urges go away? And how do you, how do you not self-injure when you have these urges? And I think it would be disingenuous for me to say that that's not something that I struggle with still. I do have urges still, you know, it was a behavior that I engaged in frequently for a long, long time. And so I think it's natural for your brain and for your body to remember that and to still kind of go to that place. And so I think that to say anything otherwise was just a lie honestly i yeah i have urges and and they come and they go and you know they're not as intense as they once were but i recognize that that may just be something that i deal with because of this history that i have and it just is what it is 
in thinking in terms of recovery, because everyone defines recovery differently, some would be would consider, hey, you're experiencing urges, and that's just part of recovery, but you, you haven't acted on those urges. Others might think the fact that urges are still present might mean that I'm not in recovery or fully recovered. And I know recovery is a very big term <laughs> with, with many meanings for different people. What does recovery mean for you? I think that for me, recovery is mostly just Being in a place where when those urges come, I have tools that I can use to resist acting on those urges. In the period that I would consider myself in recovery, there have been times when I have self-injured. So I don't want to say that like, for me, recovery is all about being totally, you know, clean, quote unquote. I don't even know what word to use in place of that, but totally clean all the time because, you know, that hasn't always been true for me. But I think that you can be in recovery and still slip up on occasion And that's why I don't like the counting thing, because I don't like the kind of failure that comes with, well, now the clock resets to zero, because technically, yes, you know, you might have slipped up. There were years where I would consider myself in recovery, where I would cut, you know, once that year or whatever the case may be. For me, it's healthy to say, I am in recovery. I have these tools. I've worked on this a lot. The urge still comes and I'm still a human. And so sometimes I might still make a mistake. I might still react poorly you know, because we're all humans and we all do things that we wish we hadn't done. And for me, that thing just happens to be self-injury. So I think that as long as it's not something that is the go-to reaction every time or an urge that I'm giving into every time, or even on a consistent basis in any way, that for me, I can still say, you know, I'm in recovery if I'm not reacting to those urges, you know, in that way. So I don't know if that makes any sense or not, or not but that's, you know, kind of what it is for me. Absolutely. I know a number of listeners hearing your story probably have similar stories because I'm thinking about my interview with Malika back in episode eight, where she had a bad experience with her youth group in church and how it affected her faith. I hear you sharing about your experiences with youth leaders and youth pastors, both positive and negative, and wondering about your faith. How do you make sense of self-injury in the context of your faith and spirituality? Yeah, so I'm a Christian. I grew up in the church. You know, like we've already talked about, I've been really heavily involved in church my whole life. I went to a Christian college. I have a degree in biblical languages. So I'm like fully immersed. My first job out of college was at a church. Like I'm fully immersed in the church world. And so that's something I've had to spend a lot of time, you know, kind of thinking through and reconciling. Like, how do I reconcile the fact that this is something that I've struggled with and also I'm a Christian? And what does that mean? You know, there's a verse in the Bible in 1 Kings that talks about people cutting themselves like as part of an idolatry worship situation. And I've had that verse quoted at me by pastors who have, you know, were like, this is a form of idolatry. Your self-injury is a form of idolatry. And that just isn't something that I feel like is true in any way. You know, I think it's okay for Christians to struggle. We know that everybody struggles in different ways. And, you know, the way that I struggle might be different than the way that you struggle, but we all have those things. And just because you're struggling doesn't mean that you're not a believer doesn't mean that you're not faithful or can't be faithful. You know, I think there's this messaging that comes across a lot of times that if you're struggling in some way, it means you're not doing enough. You're not reading your Bible enough. You're not going to church enough. You're not in a community of believers enough. And just if you would do these things enough, you wouldn't have this struggle. And sometimes it's more than that. You know, it's not always a quick fix. It's not always, well, if you just read your Bible more than you want, then you aren't going to cut yourself. Like that's, that's not a correlation that's there necessarily. And so I think for me, a lot of it came from just this compassionate idea that if I believe in a loving God, which I do, then God's grace and his compassion is still enough 
to meet me where I am, whether that's on a good day or a bad day, whether I'm actively engaging in self-injury or not at that point, I can be a Christian and have a strong faith and believe all these things and still also struggle. It's a both and situation. And I'm okay with the tension there. And modeling that you can be okay with that tension, I think is going to be so important for so many people listening because we don't need perfect models in life. We need real ones. I think your story really highlights that and inspires, if anyone at least inspires me. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Is there anything else in your story that we haven't touched on that is really important and true to you, to your story and lived experience of self-injury? I think that really it's just the thing that I think doesn't get talked about a lot is that it's like I said, that silent effort of recovery, the invisible effort of recovery. And I think that those of us who have lived experience don't like to talk about that or acknowledge it because in some way it feels like being proud of something that maybe you shouldn't be in some, you know, kind of twisted way. Like, I think it's okay to be proud of the fact that you are doing well and also recognize that there's still room to grow. And I think that that's something that people on the outside looking in don't recognize either because they're just unaware of it or they don't view that as a step in the right direction or something. And so I think that the acknowledgement of that is something that has become more important to me, especially as I've gotten older and, you know, kind of had the benefit of hindsight now on this decade of my life that was a time when I was really struggling with this. Invisible effort toward recovery. Mm -hmm. Based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to parents? Be willing to have a conversation about this. If you think your child is struggling, approach it with an open mind and an open heart and be willing to really listen to what they're saying, even if it doesn't make sense to you. If this isn't something that you struggle with, I think that it's counterintuitive to a lot of what we think and believe. You know, most of the time, like people don't naturally hurt themselves. And so I think that if you're not somebody that struggled with this, then everything about self-injury just feels backwards and counterintuitive. But there's a reason that they're doing it. And it may not be something that you see as like a good, quote unquote, good reason or justifiable reason or something like that. But listen to what the reason is, because really the behavior is an outcropping of something else. It's not typically the standalone issue. It's just the expression of whatever the real issue is. And so if you can approach it with kindness and really be willing to listen to what a kid is saying, then I think that that's going to go a long way. Based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to professionals, whether clinicians, therapists, psychologists, or researchers? Recognize that it's it's not a cry for attention in most cases. That's a myth that's out there for both, you know, parents and clinicians. I think, you know, there's still a pretty big chunk of clinicians who think that it's not a cry for attention in most cases. Again, just be willing to listen to what the reasoning is and be okay with that reasoning. My reasoning doesn't have to be true for you. I think being willing to be okay with that tension and also, you know, just being willing to approach it in a way that feels genuine is incredibly helpful and freeing and gives the person who's struggling room to express what's going on. You know, also, it's not an uncommon issue. Like statistically, it's not that uncommon. And so recognize that you're probably going to run across somebody at some point who is struggling with this. And if you can be prepared and have a general baseline knowledge of something about, you know, non-suicidal self-injury, that's a helpful starting point instead of coming in blind. You know, if somebody's listening to this podcast and they're probably already ahead of the game because they have a baseline, you know, knowledge to some extent. So I think that that's also helpful. 
Yeah, what a great recommendation. Finally, based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to other people with lived experience? I'm thinking adults who currently self-injure or have a history of self-injury even. I think it's okay if you're an adult and you're struggling. You know, I think that this self-injury gets painted a lot as a teenage issue, you know, especially a teenage girl issue. And that's not true. It's something that affects everybody or can affect everybody, anybody and everybody. And so I don't think that if you're an adult struggling, you need to feel any shame about the fact that you're struggling. It's okay to be an adult and struggling with this. And also just be gentle with yourself. Like so much of self-injury is rooted in this shame and secrecy. And so if in any way at all, you can dispel some of that, whether that's by talking to a significant other or a friend or a doctor or whoever it is to help it not be so secret and so shame driven, then that will help you move forward towards recovery. And if you have a history of this, then I think that like me, you're in a position where you can kind of speak to this experience that other teenagers are living right now. You know, when I was a teenager and first struggling, like I said, nobody was talking about this. And that's one of the reasons why I talk about it now, because Back then when I was 15, Googling how to quit cutting, there were like three hits on Google. Like there's nothing out there. I feel a personal responsibility in some ways to share my story and my experience so that people who are struggling, regardless of their age, you know, don't feel so alone. Because while this is an issue people struggle with typically alone, you are not alone if you are struggling. And you write a lot about this or have written about this on your blog and your webpage. And I think you have some great tips there. Do you have any other recommendations for maybe teenagers with lived experience of self-injury? Be willing to talk to somebody. You know, I think that being willing to open up, I know it's scary and it's a risk and that doesn't go away. But I think if you're willing to do that and take that chance that you might be surprised at the reaction because there are a lot of people who truly do care and want to help. And so if you can find one of those people and admit that maybe you do need some help or even just clue them in that you're struggling, then you'll have somebody on your side that's you know out there. And it feels good when you have people on your side. Community feels good. And so if you can find that in some way, in an honest way, you know, where you're not hiding this part of yourself, then that's something that is really freeing and makes it a lot easier to work towards recovery. Thank you for this interview. I mean, I feel inspired and I think you challenge me. I've learned a lot of different things just moving forward, even as a psychologist in my practice with therapy that I can keep in mind. And then also balancing that tension of dealing with ourselves compassionately, even amidst behavior that we're not maybe fully proud of, but rather than labeling the behavior ourselves as bad, we can still be compassionate toward ourselves and kind. And I think that's where a lot of that freedom can come. So thank you, Brittany, for making your story public, especially in this venue with we have so many people listening that are going to hear this. Thank you for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast. It is not considered therapy or meant to be a replacement for therapy, so if you or someone you love is in crisis and needs to talk to someone, you can reach out to the Crisis Text Line, a global not-for-profit organization providing free mental health texting service through confidential crisis intervention by texting HOME to 741-741. If you found this podcast helpful, please subscribe, give us a rating, and tell your friends. For all things psychology, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Doc Westers. For all things self-injury, follow ISSS on Facebook and Twitter at I-T-R-I-P-L-E-S. I'm Dr. Nicholas Westers. Thank you for listening to The Psychology of Self-Injury.